The race for post-quantum cryptographic signature primitives is in its final lap over at NIST, which recently announced Dilithium, Falcon, and Rainbow as its three signature primitive finalists. But a paper recently published by KU Leuven researcher Warald Berlins claims to find serious weaknesses in the security of Rainbow, one of those three finalists. In fact, the paper claims that the weaknesses are so severe that Rainbow's security parameters now fall short of the security requirements set out by the NIST post-quantum competition. But how does Rainbow work, and how do these weaknesses affect it? And why weren't they spotted until now? We discuss this and more in this week's episode of Cryptography FM. Berlins is a PhD candidate in the COSIC Research Group at KU Leuven, funded by an FWOSB fellowship. Ward mostly works on the design and cryptanalysis of post-quantum digital signature algorithms. He has worked with multivariate cryptography, code-based cryptography, isogeny-based cryptography, and lattice-based cryptography, and some less-known hardness assumptions such as the permuted kernel problem and the security of the Legendre PRF. During the fall of 2018, Ward visited NIST for a three-month internship, where he studied the security of post-quantum cryptographic algorithms submitted to the NIST post-quantum cryptography competition. Hello, Ward. Hello. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. I'm very excited to have you on the show. Today, we're discussing your new paper, which is titled Improved Cryptanalysis of UOV, uh, UOV being the uh, Unbalanced Oil and Vinegar Scheme and Rainbow, which is a post-quantum cryptographic primitive that is constructed on the, based on the uh, unbalanced oil and vinegar scheme, right? Yes, they're both, both uh, signature schemes. Yes, okay. Um, so first thing when I read this paper, I actually really uh, was very sort of impressed by the understatedness of the results, which is sort of like a, 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 always a sign of a good paper, right? When, when someone has strong results, and you and you read the abstract and it's like very low key you know like the last sentence of the abstract this means that these parameters uh, these parameter sets fall short of the security requirements set out by nest and it's like this just hits you like a bolt of lightning but it's written in such a like laid back sort of way and this is this is very true to all papers that i most papers that i've read um and most uh, great research and so um, this is a very impressive paper because, uh, as I understand it, you're claiming that, uh, and you're showing in the paper, that you have attacks on Rainbow, which is one of the post-quantum signature schemes that NIST is offering uh, as one of the finalists. So a finalist, not just like any candidate. I believe there were three finalists. You had Crystal yeah. Dilithium, you had Falcon, right? And you had Rainbow. So this is, this is a big claim. Uh, how how big is the real world impact of uh, these um, uh, problems that you have discovered and documented? Um, so from a practical point of view, we're still not going to break the parameters that were proposed. Um, the, for example, the first parameter set was targeting NIST security level one, which is uh, roughly the same as uh, breaking AS with 100, 128-bit keys. And... Um, the attack in the paper is uh, 
roughly 20 bits of security less than that. So 2 to 20 is a million. So it's a million times more efficient than an attack on AES, which is still very expensive. I don't think anyone at the moment can do this attack. But especially if we want to um, standardize a new scheme, then we should start um, with something that is uh, secure. So it, it is a millions of times improvement on the attack cost, but you're saying that nothing described here is um, constitutes a real-world attack on, yes. on Rainbow that you can execute uh, today or even five, ten years in the future. There is no... Uh, but it still falls short of the security parameters uh, set out by NIST. So the, the security bounds, um, I suppose they're higher than uh, actually allowing a... You know, if you break these security bounds, yeah, if you go so, below these security bounds, you don't get a real-world attack, but it's still below what NIST considers acceptable. Yeah, NIST said uh, for security level one, we want to have roughly the same level of security as AES with 128-bit keys, and this is not not the case for for Rainbow anymore. Okay, so let's start with the basics. Could you tell us? Um, what is Rainbow and how does it work? You know, I know, for example, that dilithium is based on the um, sort of lattice mathematics. Um, and so what sort of math is uh, Rainbow based on? And can you give us maybe a high-level overview of how that signature scheme works? Yeah, so Rainbow is based on the UOV scheme, which stands for unbalanced oil and vinegar. And they both uh, rely on the hardness of uh, solving a system of multivariate quadratic equations. So I give you a list of, of quadratic pol polynomials and a lot of variables. And the problem is to, to find a solution that satisfies all these equations. This is an NP-hard uh, problem. It's believed to be expo exponentially hard on average. So it's a good problem to build cryptography on. Right? And conceptually, the, the way UOV and Rainbow work is a bit similar to RSA signatures because they both use a, a trapdoor function. Like RSA uses modular exponentiation, which is a trapdoor function, meaning you can evaluate it very efficiently. If I give you an input, you can just raise it to an exponent modulo or an integer, and you get an output. But if I give you an output, then it's really hard to get the input, except if you know some trapdoor information. In the case of RSA, that's the factorization of your modulus. If you know that factorization, then it's really easy to find uh, an input. And you use that to, to make a signature scheme. If you want to sign a message, you basically just hash it to get an output, and then a signature is just an input that results in that output. Right? And the difference with UOV and Rainbow is that instead of modular exponentiation, we use uh, a system of multivariate quadratic equations. So just a list of, of uh, expressions uh, of the form like x1 squared plus x1, x2 plus x3 squared, uh, something like that. And then a signature is just an assignment to the variables that results in, in your message or in the hash of your, your message, right? And so um, how do we get the trapdoor? What's the trapdoor? In the case of UOV, um, it's uh, a linear subspace of your input space on which all your polynomials evaluate to zero. Right? So just, uh, yeah, the, the, the secret key is just a basis of this space. And for any input in this space, all the, all the polynomials in the public key, they evaluate to zero. And it turns out that once you know this, this uh, secret subspace, then you can solve the system very efficiently. 
So that's like the analogous to the the factorization of the, the RSA modulus. So this sounds like simpler math than um, maybe what's uh, behind um, uh, isogeny-based crypto or yes, uh, yes. error-correcting codes or lattice-based crypto. Uh, is that correct? Uh, yes, it's, it's very, very elementary. You just do some arithmetic mm. over very small finite fields, for example, with two to the eight elements, like they're using AES. Uh, and you just evaluate some, some polynomials, so it's really, really easy. So I, I, this, this seems like a really old, uh, also, uh, set of um, hard problems. And uh, as we've just uh, discussed, they seem to be easy to, easier to understand than, than other hard problems. And these are criteria that NIST uh, stated that they value in their selection criteria. Um, problems that are well studied, that are easy to understand, because that means that maybe the implementations will be easy to implement. It's possible that that translates into an easy, um, easier implementations. And so uh, are there any setbacks to this kind of signature scheme? Uh, maybe it's slower or... Um, uh, compared yeah. com compared to lattice-based crypto, for example, or um, other types of signature schemes. Yeah. So the the main setback is um, that your public key is a list of polynomials, and each polynomial has a, a lot of coefficients because there's a high number of variables. Like for example, um, for Rainbow, you could have 150 variables and 50 polynomials. So each polynomial has roughly 150 squared divided by two. Uh, terms, and for each term you need to restore the the coefficient. Right? So this makes your public key, your system of equations, really large and and takes up a lot, lot of memory. Uh, it's like on the order of hundreds of kilobytes, which is much much larger than, for example, RSA signatures or or elliptic curve signatures. So that's the main the main drawback. It's not a performance issue. It's a key size issue. Yes, a key size issue. The yeah, performance is is really Okay, and another drawback is um, that all the constructions, not, not all the constructions, but most of the uh, multivariate-based signature schemes, they, um, they don't have a formal security proof in the sense that we have some well-defined hard problem. And if we assume this problem is, is, uh, is hard, then the signature scheme is, is secure. Like in, in the case of UOV, you kind of have to assume that this subspace that is in in your input space cannot be found and this is not really a a, a well studied problem it, it's only interesting to to the uv signature scheme but it's not really uh something that has been studied independently for a long period of time okay uh have have there been any schemes that are based on the unbalanced oil and vinegar scheme that have been used in practice before or have been have found their way into some primitive designs before or is this the first time that despite the age of this uh, scheme that we see a primitive that actually goes into a competition and is implemented with the view of being potentially integrated into I don't know TLS 1.4 or, or something like that yeah to the best of my knowledge um, none of the multivariate signature schemes have really been been used uh, probably the reason is that just the, the the RSA signatures and elliptic curve signatures, they're just uh, much better because of the keys that are much smaller. So there never was a really good reason to, to use them in the first place. But now with uh, post-quantum cryptography, of course, we have, a, we have a reason to look into these old schemes and, and maybe use them. 
Okay. All right. So um, I think we understand uh, the sort of context behind Rainbow. And it's interesting because in your paper, you say that you have two different types of attacks on the on the rainbow scheme. So I, I, I'm the most important question to me personally on this list of questions is the question that I can't get to now. But it's basically why have these new attacks not been found earlier? This is definitely something that I th personally interests me, especially given that you would think that the NIST post quantum competition uh, attracts a high level of scrutiny. That's the whole point, right, of, of having this competition. But you were not involved in the design, I don't think, of any of these schemes, uh, I hope I'm not mistaken. No, I was uh, involved in one of the schemes. Oh, I see. Okay. It only made it to the second round of the competition. Oh, okay, sorry. Um, so yes, you were involved in this, but I, I guess I would suppose that maybe you would expect more cryptanalysis from NIST or from <clears throat> NIST's partners that would be uh, incentivized into finding uh, attacks and or weaknesses on these schemes before they're standardized. Uh, but uh, despite um, despite a lot of discussion on the mailing list uh, from NIST and uh, NIST adjacent organizations, there there, there was no uh, mention of um, of any uh, of these attacks that you found. But let's discuss the attacks and their implications first. So you mentioned an attack that you term a intersection attack on uh, on these primitives. Could you please describe what that is? Yes. So um, the intersection attack is an attack that applies both to UV and to rainbow so for now i'm just going to talk about uov because it's it's simpler and it'll make the the story easier um so um i'm going to start by uh, a very old attack by uh kipnis and shamir and they attacked um uov when it was first proposed and then the the proposal was to use uh, a public key where the number of variables was two times the number of equations. And this, uh, this ratio between those two is really uh, the most important parameter for the, for the security. Right? So initially, that was two times larger than the number of, uh, of equations. And in that case, uh, there was a very efficient attack, a polynomial time attack that was practical. Um, and this is the, this is a starting point for my attack also. And this attack um, works um, by um, if I give you a, a polynomial, a quadratic polynomial in a large number of variables, then you can make a matrix out of this. By in each entry of the matrix, you just put the if in entry ij, you put the coefficient of the term xi x, xi times xj. Right. So for each polynomial, you get a matrix. And it turns out that these matrices um, have the property that if you multiply them with this uh, secret oil space, then uh, it does not change the, the oil space. It, it rearranges the, the elements in the space, but the space itself remains invariant. Right? And once you know this, once you have a lot of these uh, matrices that leave your space invariant, then it's just a linear algebra problem to find, to find the space itself. So you're problem. introducing a notion of linearity into which which makes cryptanalysis possible. Yes. If I yeah. So yeah. okay. And uh, so this was the attack uh, by Kipnis and Shamir, and um, this only works when the number of variables is two times the number of equations. So then they they increase the number of variables, and that's since then they call it the unbalanced uh, oil and vinegar scheme. And then this property does no longer hold. The space is no longer invariant. 
but still it has a property that it gets mapped to it gets mapped to a different space, but it still intersects the 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 space. So it's not completely it does not send the space to something completely random. It still intersects in a, in a big space, and this is uh, what the new attack exploits. Like basically, you you compose you you build a system of equations for which the solutions are exactly the the vectors in that intersection. And then once you find something in the, in the intersection, it gives you enough information to to break the whole thing. Didn't they suspect when they were doing this whole imbalance thing that this seemed like a very sort of patched on sort of fix to, because you're just, uh, it's, it's basically, it, it sounds similar to uh, increasing the side of, uh, so I'm not an expert in this sort of math at all. And so it's possible that I'm very mistaken, but just when you have such a, such an attack, it sounds to me like all they did was basically increase the size of the finite field or something uh, in, in the in the Diffie-Hellman equivalent. Or so it's possible that this does not map exactly into the math there. So is it not a, an accurate sort of analogy? Um, well, they did not just scale up the thing; they they changed the, the 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 ratio between the number of variables and the number of equations. And um, if you think about it, it's kind of um, natural that the smaller your secret space becomes, the, the harder it will be to find it. Right? And if, if your space is really small, then at some point it will be impossible to find it because um, it's just, if you just pick a completely random system of equations, then it will also have these small spaces on which it vanishes. So at that point, you can't really um, expect to find it because otherwise you could just solve any uh, system of equations and that's an NP-complete problem. Right? So at some point, you expect the problem to become hard. We, we just didn't know at which, at which point that is. So initially they thought, okay, maybe if the number of variables is two times the number of equations, then it's secure. But um, that turned out not to be the case. But you're describing here an attack that works on the unbalanced oil and vinegar scheme, right? Yeah. So your attack is on rainbow. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, my attack is on both schemes, actually. Okay. Um, but the the original attack did it? Could you did you take the original attack and apply it as is on rainbow, or did you have to change uh, and and come up with new things to add on top of the original attack? No, I had to come up with this this new thing that uh, exploit this this intersection, right? That, as soon as it's no longer balanced, we have this, this intersection. And the idea is that, OK, we can solve some kind of system to find vectors in this intersection. And how did that look uh, in terms of applying the attack on Rainbow? What were the challenges? What were the differences in Rainbow that you had to take into account? Yeah, so um, maybe I should first explain a little bit what, how Rainbow, what Rainbow is compared to UOV. Um, so, Another way of looking at UV is that if you restrict all your equations to some subspace, then all your equations become zero. Right? And for a rainbow, we have that if we restrict the input space to some secret space, and we also restrict the output space, then we get a UV public key. Right? So it's kind of uh, like Russian dolls. They have a rainbow, and then inside there's a there's a other layer of UV. And in fact, you can have many many uh, layers like there's an outer rainbow, and then inside there's a smaller instance of so rainbow. So I've written an implementation of uh, Crystal Skyber, and uh, there's something similar that's going on there, where they build like an NCPA uh, scheme 
based on lattice-based crypto, and that's at the core of the primitive. And then on top of that, you have like some stuff that basically happens uh, with um, some matrix multiplication and like hashing and whatever. And then you get the uh, primitive. And this sounds similar to what you're saying, where ultimately like they have this sort of like very raw core that's based on existing math. And then on top of it, they have their own sort of thing that turns it into rainbow. Yeah, it's a bit it's mm-hmm. a bit similar, right? And um, so my attack, uh, the intersection attack, basically just um, ignores the, the 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 rainbow structure and just attacks the 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 UV instance that's hidden inside. So. Okay, um, so you also have another attack that's called the. Rectangular minrank attack. Yes. Um, so please explain what what a rectangular minrank attack uh, is. Yes. So um, there already was some attack on Rainbow that was called the the minrank attack, and there um, the the matrices that I described before. So for each polynomial, we have a, a matrix. Well, it turned out that there is a linear combination of these matrices that has an exceptionally small rank. And if you can find this linear combination, then this gives you enough information to break the entire scheme. Uh, this, so the, the problem really becomes you're, you're given a uh, set of matrices and you have to find this linear combination of low rank. And this problem is called the min rank problem. But uh, what I found in the, in the new paper is that um, like if you look at all these matrices, you can see it as like a three-dimensional array of, of coefficients. And if you, instead of slice it like horizontally, you slice it ver- vertically, then you get like another set of matrices and they're no longer square, but they're rectangular. And they also have the same property that there's a, a linear combination of them with an even lower rank. So we can play the same game and, and apply the, the min rank uh, algorithms to this new set of uh, matrices. And then again, you can you, once you find a solution, you have enough information to break the system. So re- rectangular is just that the matrix has more rows than columns, right? Yes, yes. Okay. All right. Kind of like when you read these names, you figure out it's something. This is like there must be like some sort of insane, like beautiful geometric core to the attack that escapes all possible. And you no, know, it's just that the matrix has yeah, more rows. Yeah. <laughs> it keeps happening, and I never get used to it. Um, Okay, so, all right, my favorite question. Why have the new attacks, uh, rectangular min-rank attack and the intersection attack? Uh, you know the, you know what? I'm, I'm kind of confused here because you have mentioned that both of these attacks had initially had some sort, like they're not entirely 100% new to human knowledge. Like we had uh, similar attacks in the past on a branch of math that's very well studied. And um, I am kind of uh, very surprised about this. Why haven't we been able to find these attacks earlier, especially given the enormous, um, it's kind of like the best scrutiny you can possibly get, isn't it? You know, when they standardized AES, when they standardized DES, when they standardized all of these things, the main purpose, aside from like establishing criteria for performance and easy ease of implementation and whatever, like one of the main points of this thing is for people to look at it and analyze it and try to break it. And here you have uh, attacks based on very well understood prior attacks 
in a branch. Maybe, isn't this like the oldest way to do post-quantum crypto? It's even older than Mikhail yes, as far as I know. I don't know if it's older, but it's around the same. It's basically like older than both of us, right? As, uh, as humans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, uh, and so could you could you tell us more about this? Yeah, so, well, I would like to be able to say that I'm just a genius and nobody else was able to do it, but I'm afraid that uh, the truth is just that. This is not this is not a Silicon Valley job interview. Okay, so you can say <laughs> maybe you can say that there, but not here. Yeah, no. The the truth is just that um, not that many people have put that much effort into it yet. It has existed for a long period of time, but nobody really used it. So but it's the third. It's the finalist round of the NIST post quantum competition. Like yes. this is how, how did it even get there if people have not put effort into analyzing it. And you have NIST that are issuing these long, elaborate reports, you know, and, and in those reports, like the one where they um, announced the finalists, they like had this section describing why you didn't have isogeny-based crypto in the finalists. And they're like, isogeny-based crypto mathematics deserve more scrutiny. This is what, and we encourage more scrutiny. And they said that explicitly. And so obviously you have these people who are looking at the different branches of math and trying to understand which ones deserve more scrutiny. So how can, in, in, in light of this, uh, what makes you think that not enough scrutiny has been given to this particularly old and well-established branch, branch of math? Well, I wouldn't say that multivariate cryptography was uh, well-established. I think most, uh, most people in post-quantum would um, they were always a little bit suspicious of, uh, of multivariate cryptography. Um, and also, I think another reason why I was able to find these um, attacks is because I really put an effort into um, simplifying the scheme and like really um, understanding what's going on. So I, when I when I started out writing the paper, I just uh, wanted to write like a UOV for dummies paper where I just explain like really what are the imp important concepts and uh, which things are not because i think um in the past that was not really properly done like the specification um, was kind of complicated and uh, that needed to be improved the this actually brings up a question in my mind that is not on my list of questions and actually barely related to the subject but something i really want to talk about um i recently finished my uh, phd studies and when i started my grad studies I was very intimidated by a lot of the papers that I was reading because it seemed on first hand that, uh, and a lot of them clearly were, uh, describing things that are complicated, hard to understand, using math that is um, esoteric and uh, uses heavy notation and so on. And then after my first year, I realized that a lot of this stuff, it's almost as if it's on purpose. Like if, if you actually um, read it and understand it, immediately you see that all of this stuff can be described in ways that are 10 times simpler than the way that it's actually described. And I have to say, this actually applied to the majority of papers that I've read, uh, especially when it comes to theoretical crypto. And even when theoretical crypto people try to do protocols, protocol papers, they still use this style. And there it's particularly egregious because you've already read the protocol spec. And then you look at it from a theoretical crypto like paper on, on ePrint. And then it's just, it blows your mind. Like how did they, it's, it's kind of like this, it's kind of like this talent of, of making it incredibly complicated. And so 
I'm not even going to ask you if this is a problem in the field. For me, it's a really serious problem, and I'm 100% convinced about this. Uh, my question to you is, what can we do uh, to, to, to sort of fight this? Because it's, 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 I think, quite dishonest. I mean, you, you're making your paper harder to understand. You're introducing all of these notions uh, into the way that you describe the protocol that are particularly, I'm not talking about you, of course, uh, that are just authors in general, that are particularly um, sort of like ineffective unnecessary, but that add to like this sort of like esoteric legitimacy of the underlying formalism, but in a way that doesn't help anyone, uh, just makes the paper longer and more impressive. Uh, and it seems like there's a sort of incentive behind this in the sense that, you know, you, maybe you get published better or something, but um, it is a problem. And then someone like someone like you comes along, and they're able to look at it, and and actually, by the by virtue of just simplifying the description, immediately or semi immediately, be able to uh, get closer to to finding uh, issues that perhaps were uh, better hidden or partially hidden by these um, more more difficult descriptions. Uh, do you think that there's like does this happen? Is this like an innocent mistake? On, on the part of people uh, in the field? Or is there like a sort of incentive? Do, do people, uh, do papers that get written like this get published better or, or more often or, 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 or more frequently? Um, and what can we do to sort of disincentivize this sort of style of, of, of formalizing and paper writing? Yeah, um, I, I don't think people do it on purpose. I think it's just because uh, writing something complicated is easier than writing something easy because it takes a lot of effort to to like really think what what are the important concepts here especially if you're like in a hurry to make the the paper deadline you, you just write down something until it works and then then you're done so it's basically like gcc when i ask gcc to compile something without optimizations like the binary comes out real quick but it's really slow to yes. parse and read and when I want like an optimized compilation, it takes forever, but then the binary is understood very quickly by the processor. It's kind of like exactly, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I, I the, think that's, the, that's a problem. We should take more, more effort to try to make things easier, to present things easier. Yeah, I, I agree. I hope our listeners agree too, in the case that they're, you know, writing a paper. <laughs> All right. Um, okay, uh, so... How feasible are these? Uh, well, we've already discussed that. Uh, can can we salvage uh, Rainbow? Can can you fix this scheme and and actually make it work again and and make it reach the NIST declared security bounds? Uh, yes, yes, that's possible. We only the, the attack only removes like twenty bits of security, so we can just make the the parameters a little bit bigger again, and then it seems secure. Except that um, in the case of Rainbow. I don't. I personally don't think that's a good idea, because um, like the new attack is much more efficient at breaking rainbow than UV, so the, the gap in performance uh, becomes much smaller. Right? Rainbow was designed to be a more efficient variant of UV, and now the gap becomes smaller. And also, a lot of the uncertainty in the security of rainbow is because rainbow is more complicated than UV. So in my opinion, it would be better to just use the use UOV because it's simpler, it's better understood, and the gap in performance is really not that big anymore. So I guess the answer is yes, you can still salvage Rainbow, but personally, I think it's better to use UOV instead. 
But what about the, so you've already said that Rainbow has a key size problem. And I, I, I assume that the U, sort of like raw UOV scheme probably has worse performance or worse key size problems. Um, yeah, so in the, in the paper, I put a little section where I propose new parameters. And if I remember correctly, then um, the new parameters for a rainbow would be 200 kilobytes and for UOV would be 240 kilobytes. So yeah, they're, they're both big, but I mean, the 40 kilobytes difference is not going to be, if you can afford 200, why wouldn't you be able to afford 240? Well, are there any other uh, multivariate signature schemes out there, maybe other than Rainbow that uh, could, could, uh, could be secure, offer, offer this particular level of, uh, of uh, security that NIST is looking for? Yeah, so there's in the NIST competition another scheme called GEMS. I think it stands for Great um, Multivariate Signature Scheme. Um, but uh, it's also uh, very recently on ePrint, uh, a paper appeared that used like the, the same technique as I used in my paper and use it to, to break that, uh, that scheme. Because actually that scheme is, is very similar to Rainbow in the sense that there's like this, this outer layer and then inside you just put another signature scheme. Like, and so, so the new technique uh, allows you to just ignore the outer shell and, and attack the inner scheme uh, more or less directly. Like, so also this, this scheme has been around for very long. It's HFEV minus, that's what it's based on. Um, but that also seems to be, to be broken now. Okay. Wow. I'm looking at the GEMS paper. Um, the, the paper doesn't parse correctly because the parentheses that they're using in LaTeX are too big. And so they cover the text and it's hard to read. Uh, okay. So the, the papers that could Yes, it is. I'm going to have a whole episode talking about just ran me ranting. Like the guest doesn't say anything. They're just like looking awkwardly at the microphone. And I'm like, and this paper and that paper and that paper took like a month to read and there's nothing new in it. And it's just going to be like that for a while. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. Please don't unsubscribe from, from my show. <laughs> and um, so, okay, well, uh, let's wrap this up. So tell us uh, more. Um, I sometimes ask my guests to tell us about a paper that they've read recently that they think is really cool. And here you have offered a paper called SQI Sign, Compact Post-Quantum Signatures from Quaternions and Isogenies. Could you tell us more about this cool paper? Yes, yeah, so I believe it's uh, pronounced key sign. Um, and um, yeah, it's a new uh, signature scheme. Uh, based on a totally different set of mathematics. It's based on isogeny, uh, isogeny problems. And um, so they managed to uh, build a signature scheme uh, basically with a, with a one round. Uh, you just do, do the entire thing in one round. So similar to uh, Schnorr signatures, for example, whereas all the previous isogeny signatures, they had to repeat uh, around like a number of times and I made it less efficient and really the, the the impressive part is that uh, the sizes of the signature and the size of the public key are really really small they're like almost uh, they're only a little bit larger than uh, elliptic curve signatures for example uh, so that's a very very promising result um, like the only uh, practical uh, problem is that the signing operation is still slow it's 2.5 seconds 
but um, hopefully future research will uh, will speed that up, and then we would have a a very promising signature scheme. Okay, cool. Uh, I'll have that paper linked below, also in the podcast description. I suppose it's uh, time for us to wrap up. Is there anything else you would like to add before we finish up the episode? Um, no. Okay, great. Well, thanks a lot for telling us about your fantastic work. Um, so Ward Berlins uh, today was speaking about improved cryptanalysis of UOV and Rainbow. And maybe next time it'll be you talking about your amazing post-quantum cryptography scheme or cool protocol or formal verification framework or uh, fantastic new primitive or groundbreaking cryptanalysis or hash function or I don't know, a lot of other things that you can do using cryptography. Uh, cryptography FM is a cool show where you can talk about all these things and more. If you have anything interesting you want to talk about, uh, I don't care who you are, you can come and talk about it and we'll have a nice chat and you know make informative material for the community. That's what the show is all about. Um, so send us an email and come on Cryptography FM. But whether you are a listener or an active participant, I hope to see you again next week anyway on Cryptography FM.